We'll get started because, uh, I don't know, it's the first, first day of class, so uh, there may be people wandering around. Maybe somebody's up on the sixth floor. Uh, but anyway, um, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Otto Santa Ana for the first uh, colloquium this term. He's going to talk about contemporary network television news reporting uh, about Latinos and uh, he is a professor uh, in Chicana and Chicano Studies at uh, UCLA, and he's uh, got a background in linguistics from the University of Pennsylvania, so he has a structural approach to a lot of his analysis. Very interesting. Um, he argues that uh, the uh, social hierarchies that get perpetuated in, in television audiences and news and also in print media are uh, deeply structured and that they are repetitive. And so he's interested in studying the origins of those deep structures. He's the author of an uh, award-winning book, uh, Brown Tide Rising, uh, published in 2002, uh, which was about the ways in which news reinforce inequity in representations of Latinos uh, and this won uh, the Book of the Year Award uh, from the uh, American Political Science Association for Racial Political Ideology category. Uh, today he's going to talk about his new book, which is about to appear. It's titled uh, One in a Hundred, J-U-A-N, uh, Faces and Stories of Latinos on the Network Press. And this is coming out from Texas. Uh, so this will extend his research in print media to multimodal media. And so it's, uh, again, a really interesting topic. We had the chance to talk about things for about an hour before we came down here. So it's uh, fascinating, uh, the range of his activities here. Uh, he's also working on two additional projects, uh, one with uh, Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante, uh, it's going to be an anthology on political events of Arizona in 2010 titled Arizona Firestorm, Global Immigration Realities, National Media, and Provincial Politics. And uh, his next monograph will be expanding on his recent paper on the racial politics of Jay Leno's humor to explore uh, mass-mediated political humor. So he's really deeply immersed in the news media of our time. So I'd like you to welcome him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I've got. I just updated my uh, Microsoft Word and so Microsoft PowerPoint. So I hope I can do it, and my little computer doesn't crash on me. So thank you for coming, especially on the first day of. Uh, classes. Uh, I want to thank Jim, William, uh, Jessica upstairs, and everybody who was uh, instrumental in bringing me here. I really, really look forward to talking. I was excited. I think I might have to sit because uh, my glasses don't quite focus down here, and I don't get a big screen. So if that's all right with you. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, this is about Juan in 100. This is not about Juan, the Juan percent. So it's not, I'm not referencing uh, Mitt Romney at all. Um, I am actually referencing uh, the anger 
that my abuela had toward the uh, evening news. She's, uh, uh, this is actually not my painting, but I, had a, I have an artist friend who, who talked about, just like my abuela, his, his abuela hated the evening news and would just uh, anger. You can see the screaming and yelling. It would even scare the dog. So what I'm going to cover in this talk is a survey of uh, um, one year's study, uh, uh, a five-year study of a one year of television news, network news, um, and I'll cover the survey portion of that. I'll talk about a semiotics that I have did, a semiotic analysis, a close reading of several selected stories. Then I'll talk about how people actually, my theory of how people construct meaning from multimodal sign. And I'll give some recommendations, including a, a relatively radical one, um, about uh, what to do about this kind of journalism. So first, a survey. And of course, you guys can pipe up anytime if I um, don't make sense or you want to ask something. This is, this is not, this is for us to talk about. If, I, if you can uh, uh, instantly um, multi-note take for me, of me, you can certainly bring up your questions rather than just posing them there in, in big, in bold letters. So, um, okay, so I took from the Vanderbilt News Archive all of the evening news newscasts from ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN. That came out to 12,140 exactly news stories that were produced in the half-hour segments every day. Fox News didn't allow us to use any access, so I don't have Fox News to talk about. Um, and the findings in brief really are pretty straightforward. Uh, anyone who's ever looked at um, Latinos or ethnic uh, uh, representation in the media, uh, the study of any women in the media for, for that matter, uh, although there were 12,140 individual stories in these four networks, there was 96 uh, less than 1%, 96 Latino stories. Uh, 118 if you included things like um, that the baseball was constructed in, uh, in San Salvador. And I, so I left out that kind of story, which really didn't have to do anything with Latinos. But if you took those which are uh, having to do Latinos, this is a w- less than 1%. So this is a 1 in 100 ratio. And that's why we get the play on words, one in a hundred. Nothing has changed in the last five years or in the last 20 years on this. And if we look at the topic, the aggregate topics, aggregate is the total, you can see that war, this was in 2004, the, at the height of the first year of the Iraq war. Uh, and U.S. politics, this was a, a, a presidential election campaign year. And the, the breakdown is like anyone who's ever studied television news. This is not unusual at all. Uh, the only thing that's different from any other years of the war was taking a great deal more precedence than otherwise. Um, the, of the 96 stories, we actually don't see the same distribution whatsoever. A presidential campaign indeed is high, and then the next one is immigration. And then we don't see the same characterizations as you see in the previous one. The if we look just at the uh, sort of a head-to-head comparison, all that I can put on one slide, um, presidential campaign was 18% of the aggregate, and immigration had less than 1%. But of the 98 stories, you see that the presidential campaign actually had um, 10% more, excuse me, and immigration was very high. So 
There was no other topic in Latino stories uh, that reached double figures. And so this is really an indication of how the media reinforces this idea that immigration is the one and only Latino issue. Uh, that hasn't changed as far as I can tell in my impressionistic studies these days. Um, overall, when we look at the survey, a distribution of topics, the real problem is that there's just so few news stories. This is a, no, this is a one story per every 11 programs. So it's, uh, it's, it's really very, uh, very rare to get this. And the distribution is skewed. So the only thing that you could see in terms of uh, Latinos' topics are the Beltway stories, that is, topics which had to do specifically with federal or state legislation uh, dealing with Latinos. Immigration was a big policy. Or if there were dead Latinos or injured Latinos, that was a really good thing to, uh, to, to uh, talk about. So if there was mayhem and Latinos were involved, we'd bring it up. So a hurricane, Latinos, you'll, you'll have Latinos on there. Um, that's the story. Now, um, I looked at these things with um, a lot of different students, and I always study this stuff in pairs at least with groups of people because I was uh, urged, um, I mean, I am urged to try to find, not to have a very idiosyncratic perspective, but there was a lot of indifference that came up that everyone would just basically agree. The Latino stories are rarely considered newsworthy, excepting immigration. In fact, I went... One day, I just, I just got so frustrated, I went to my students, and I gave two of them tasks to go to the newspapers in the year 2004 and find stories on the, on the network, newsworthy-type stories that had to do with Latinos. And they all came back early. They both came back early. There was no difficulty finding topics that could have been Latino stories for the 17% of the United States who are Latinos. And then there was a lot of ignorance, Really some amazing things that were perpetuated stereotypes, or even worse, were even badly written and misrepresented the facts. So the next one I'll show you is a, a news story from NBC, which was basically a report that the Wall Street Journal had on a new street, new, new, um, sorry, on a Wall Street Journal article that appeared that day. And you think they'd get everything right. Well, they didn't. Journal reports on a new trend in the American workforce. Hispanics are taking a large share of the new jobs created in the U.S. economy. According to a study by the Pew Hispanic Center, the number of Hispanics with jobs increased by almost 660,000 in the last year, while only 371,000 non-Hispanics found work. Most of the new jobs were in construction and services. As the presidential campaign moves... So as you can see, um, there was a lot of inaccuracies uh, Hispanics are conflated, so there's no differentiation among Hispanics. Uh, class issues were never mentioned. Hispanics are just with homogeneous group. Hispanics take jobs rather than find jobs. So there's this notion of, of some sort of aggressive action. And in the middle of this story, you see that we have a, a Latino like myself with a white collar and a tie. Um, I'm, I'm dressed like him. Uh, whereas it's all, we're all talking about uh, uh, you know, uh, construction jobs. So if you really looked at the Wall Street Journal, they never made any of these mistakes. They were very clear to differentiate the different groups, class and, and, region, and groups, immigrants versus uh, uh, what they call uh, Hispanics with the deeper roots in this country. Uh, they had great quotes that indicated that this was not jobs that were taken, but jobs that actually were, uh, that went uh, begging and so forth.
Um, the upshot of this whole survey is that uh, the, the general American viewer gets a very skewed notion of what Latinos are. Just a few numbers and the this, this, this slippage in one direction. And this is, if this is their basic source, which for many people still remains the major source of information, uh, it's a very poor source of information about who U.S. Latinos are. Now, I went from there, and in the second section of the three-section book, I talked about semantic analyses, and I took 40 news stories and subject them to a very, very detailed analysis. So I looked using social semiotics, uh, multiple, uh, multimodal metaphor analysis, and narrative analysis. And let me give you a story. I'm going to play it for you. Then I'm going to talk about some of the features, and I'll play it again so you can see what's going on. This is about Jose Padilla, the uh, so-called uh, um, uh, domestic terrorist. The U.S. Justice Department tried today to explain and justify holding a U.S. citizen without charge as a, quote, enemy combatant. CBS's Jim Stewart reports officials detailed a series of terror attacks the man allegedly was plotting against the United States. Founded by the U.S. military in Afghanistan and running for their own lives, al-Qaeda's leaders reportedly approved a desperate counterattack shortly after 9-11 when two men, including former Chicago gang member turned terrorist Jose Padilla, approached them with a daring plan. They proposed to travel to the United States to detonate a nuclear improvised bomb that they had learned to make from research on the Internet. The Justice Department released details of the Padilla plot today following criticism they have held him without charges for over two years. Padilla, a U.S. citizen, was arrested at Chicago's O'Hare Airport in May 2002, carrying $10,000 in cash, plus email addresses and telephone numbers for his al-Qaeda handlers. Al-Qaeda decided Padilla's plan to set off a nuclear bomb was not feasible, so ordered him to blow up apartment buildings and hotels instead using natural gas lines and to explore constructing a dirty bomb by wrapping conventional explosives around uranium. Authorities also disclosed that Padilla's first partner in the nuclear bomb plan was an old acquaintance from Florida, Adnan Shukrajuma. Only the two men couldn't get along. Now, Shukrajuma, also educated in the U.S., is still missing and still presumed planning a strike against the U.S. Our concern is that Shukrajuma is a trained terrorist bent on killing hundreds of people, however he could do it. Officials still haven't figured out what to do with Padilla yet. He's being held as an enemy combatant until the Supreme Court can decide his status. Dan? Jim Stewart reporting live from Washington. Thanks, Jim. So this is incredibly, it's a beautiful story. It's a, it's a rich, visually rich story, really high production values. A lot of work went into it, and it's really poor journalism. The steward, when he begins, he has this very long sentence, and he has reportedly buried at the very bottom of this very, very long sentence, which sets up the whole story. There's a visual reinforcement of the government's claims that are taken as fact, allegation, alleged, is used once in this whole text. And the government spokesman is given full authority when Padilla's uh, attorneys are not portrayed whatsoever. The governor keeps his... Inc- uh, the, the graphics created for specifically for this case are, uh, for this story, are a visual narrative that repeat, recreates this, the government's claims. And uh, you see a mirroring of the Padilla mugshot, uh, which signals, I think, uh, sort of duplicity. Uh, there's a rotating background that's red of the globe, and it, it, it blinks terror threat, terror threat, all through that. So it's a pretty interesting and very powerful sort of statement. Um, then his crystalline, 
he, he's very crystalline about his presentation about nuclear bombs, blowing up apartment buildings and so forth, and dramatic visuals that he just says in a very straightforward manner. Um, but then we see this merging of Shukujuma uh, uh, and Padilla's images, which links them semiotically. Um, but then at the very end, it gets really vague. When the Justice Department releases details of Padilla's today, following criticism, they have held him for charges without two years. No agency? And, and a vague statement about the, what the, the U.S. Supreme Court's going to do about him. So there's no un, a description of him. The basic thing you're supposed to come away with is that he's a gang member uh, turned terrorist. And just as an afterthought, sort of just, I've got to say something, this, this coda about his, um, his very uh, unique situation of being an enemy combatant, not having habeas corpus is, is left there. Now, I don't know, in, in the, I could go through this again or just pass through it, uh, what would you guys prefer? Okay, well, we'll just move right through it then. We, we, won't, we won't watch it again. The overview, I mean, this was one of the better stories, although the, the, and the amazing thing is that there was a, such remarkable unevenness. There was very accurate, very nice stories, and very poorly written stories. And a lot of the stories continue to trade on stereotypes, except when the media, the Latinos... Give their provide their own media. So, for example, in the uh, there was a, a movie that came out that year called um, um, "A Day Without Mexicans." So they took the trailer of that and used that trailer. Of course, it's full of Latinos and very interesting and very clever uh, juxtapositions. That's the one that they use, and the media and the networks use it to great strength. But across the the networks, we see. Uh, superior and inferior stories all treated with a veneer of high production values. And that makes it very much more difficult for people not to accept this because they see it as all with the same great polish. You have to know something about the background, which we did explore for 2004 in order to find the errors. Um, And so that was uh, three years' work presented in about 10 minutes. So I hope you appreciate that. Uh, The next thing is the uh, the work that I wanted to get to that I think uh, might be most interesting to you, which is about the cognitive processing of multimodal metaphors. As you know, that, that I've been talking about for a long while, and George Lakoff for 20 years has spoken about the cognitive science claim that metaphor is an organization, organi- organizing principle for understanding our reality. And it's really then a good way of studying the news messaging on television. Because uh, the argument goes, we really don't understand the world in terms of logic and mathematics. We understand the world in terms of images. And uh, metaphors are text images, and hence, and also visual metaphors are, uh, visual images are, can be metaphorical. And this is a mapping of concepts that we understand onto, and the frameworks of understanding onto concepts we have little understanding about. So... Basically, that's what a metaphor is. A metaphor takes something which we understand and maps its semantic structure, it's all its social, uh, the structural relationships that are built into that semantic structure onto an abstract notion. As people, we tend to grab onto a metaphor and think we understand a relatively complex project. For example, um, the, in the classic example is the metaphor for love. All of us have received or written a really wonderful or sad love, love poems uh, in our lifetimes. And we've been recipients of them as well. There's only three metaphors that capture all, in English, that capture all the metaphors of love. Uh, 
I, I won't go through them, but what this really means is that we take very simple and straightforward sorts of m- metaphors and use them at the expense of all understanding. Uh, typically, that's a very quick heuristic that we use all the time. So the classic example, she's a flower from my garden. I take the notion of flower and dump it onto this third-person singular pronoun, she. And instantaneously, you can understand if I change the sentence to she's the thorn on my side. Uh, uh, there has been no energy, cognitive energy involved in this, very little. Uh, it's much more difficult to do other sorts of grammatical things, and that's what the argument goes. So the argument that I laid out is that this is hegemonic common sense as a social operation is generated and sustained via the cognitive operation of metaphor analysis. In television news, we have not just one text, one type of metaphor, but uh, multiple different kinds of of, uh, uh, modes of metaphoric representation. Now, I am sad to to tell you that you will not read this chart I didn't realize that I was going to be like this, but what this is a, is a chart of a, uh, I did 20 network news stories, and I looked at the text, the visual, the audio, the graphic, uh, uh, and um, types of metaphors. And for uh, we have at the very top affirming metaphors of people, victims, and workers. Metaphors in the middle, which are uh, uh, not particularly um, mapped for good or bad, impoverished, diverse, dying, and then very negative ones, uh, in my estimation, masses, animals, and criminals. And across the board here, we have the different modes. So let me just give you a summary of what we found in these 20 news stories. Now, the challenge in in doing multimodal metaphor analysis is that people don't agree or or we get bogged down much more quickly than with text metaphors. So this really was a major project to try to undertake in the way that I do so uh, with not taking one person's but consensus groupings of evaluations in order to be sure that we were comfortable with this. Uh, There were... uh, 40, almost 41 metaphors per news story, as opposed to a normal tele, uh, newspaper article that was about seven metaphors. And this was really striking. So there was at least one major metaphor, we would call a major metaphor, in each of the 20 stories. And visual metaphors predominated. What happens when you see multiple metaphors, there's of, of different sort of valences of positive and negative. The weakened The weaker metaphors were the text metaphors, and those were often the most positive metaphors in terms of referencing immigrants. Uh, The negative metaphors were the visual metaphors, uh, more often immigrant as criminal or as animal, and those were much more powerful. Again, the mapping should be uh, from a semantic source to a semantic target. So you take this notion of criminal uh, with lawbreaker, antisocial, dangerous, and so forth, and you just map it wholesale onto the notion of immigrant. And that's how we operate with a metaphor of that sort. So how do, how do, you, how do viewers process multimodal information? So I'm going to present to you a very brief news story and with 13 metaphors regarding immigrants. And you'll see them pause really quickly. the country, beginning in Phoenix, where authorities today discovered two houses harboring at least 100 undocumented immigrants between them. 
Two other so-called drop houses were also found in and around Phoenix in recent days. At least 288 illegal immigrants arrested in all, making this one of the busiest weeks in memory, according to immigration officials. Another. Okay. So if you look at the 56 words that were being stated, there was actually two references to immigrants. One, undocumented immigrants, and one, illegal immigrants, as you can see. And so in terms of the text, the actual spoken text, this is a balanced presentation of the politics, because immigrants, whether they're considered undocumented or illegal, that's the major partisan divide for the notion of immigrant policy today. But if we focus on the other metaphors, there were, in addition to the two spoken metaphors, there were four text metaphors each time the notion of immigrant bust was presented in the caption. And uh, that's a reference to a criminal. Uh, and then also there was that CS, CSI drama music in the background, which sounded to me like CS, CSI. I asked people what it sounded like, and people tended to say, yeah, it sounds like, you know, p- police dramas. There were also six visual metaphors that people con- concurred existed. For example, the the uh, police tape, the people behind uh, um, um, chain link fence and people being frisked. So this was not a balanced news story, although on, in, in text it was. Uh, the ratio actually of metaphors between criminal on the one side and undocumented on the other side was 12 to 1. And we add to that the issue of different modes of, of metaphors having this uh, different va- valence. We're in a very visual, uh, ocular-centric sort of society, and so the visual sign is much more salient. So, and they were also turned out to be the most frequent uh, uh, metaphors. So let's just for uh, illustration's sake grant a very simple sort of breakdown in terms of spoken units. So a unit, one salient unit per every spoken metaphor I'll give two uh, spoken uh, two units for a text metaphor because it sits there a little longer than the word that's stated ephemerally, and then a visual metaphor that was not a text was was not text is given three. So, what was the relative valence, uh, relative salience of the of the immigrant metaphors of number twenty eight? This story, if uh, in this little uh, word um, word cloud, you can see. The T stands for text, the S stands for spoken, and the V stands for visual. So the criminal metaphor, in this simple, straightforward way, is clearly far more important, more salient than the undocumented notion. And if and we went through the if we went through the twenty stories that I talked about earlier, we would see that the salient students for the notion of criminal was fifty um, percent uh, more. Uh, uh, to, uh, almost 300 compared to 150 for uh, the notion of worker, which is a far more neutral sort of notion. Now, in metaphor theory, the basic argument is that you look at the metaphor and you ask, well, what is the scenario, what is the story that's being told underlying that, that captures this? And so the, the immigrant metaphor of criminal is the one that is most used in 2004, by far than any other metaphor uh, in the television news. And basically it says that immigrants are inherently criminal. They're untrustworthy and inferior people who have proved themselves by their actions to be endangered citizens in society. Law-abiding citizens have civil rights and people guilty of crimes lose those rights. They earn the scorn of the citizens and deserve harsh punishment and should be removed from society. Now the ontology that's built out of that contrasts immigrants, which are criminals, to citizens. Uh, which is understood as the as the generic, 
And so immigrants, of course, respond to citizens in this ontology as destructive and immoral people, and they correspond to upright and law-abiding ones. And so this is the statement that's being articulated in metaphor, according to Lekovian sorts of theories of metaphor that I, uh, uh, that I abide by and I argue with. And this is bordering on racist discourse, just as it was when we had immigrants as animals. It, is, it sustains oppressive power relations. It, it discriminates against certain groups. There's no differentiation between people who are actual felons and people who have just simply crossed the border. And it sustains and legitimizes certain practices of uh, power and domination. Now, um, if you accept the weighting of saliency, uh, this presupposes some sort of cognitive blending of the metaphors. So how do we actually uh, blend these uh, uh, modally incommensurate metaphors? As you remember, the traditional uh, text metaphor is pretty straightforward. Uh, You go from the source to the target. It's just sort of a one-directional arrow. But in multimodal blending, we need a little more complex story here. So what uh, uh, the, the cognitive scientists have come up with is that a generative space is set up. And on this side, you see just the two sources of, uh, that are different, the undocumented metaphor, undocumented and the criminal source domain. And those are associated with the target domain of immigrants. So at the end of this simple blend, and this is the most simple one I could find, you have immigrant is plus or minus criminal. And so that's how you can imagine in much more complex settings, we're doing this with uh, far more complexity. This is simply for illustration's sake. Now, uh, the the cognitive linguists say, let's work the blend. So we're going to take a look at the metaphor analysis, and you'll need your paper, uh, because I really do not have very good visuals for this. You didn't get your paper up there? Sir? You'll need paper. There's, there's lots, I have hundreds of sheets of paper. Hundreds. Great. Okay, so we're going to look at three analytic processes. These processes are not, I mean, I have them sequentially, but they go on, uh, they, don't, they don't have to follow a sequential order. It's more a logical, logical pieces that are, are, must be necessary for us to interpret metaphors. The first step is the cognitive blending of metaphors, and I argue that this is strictly computational work. It really takes place uh, uh, without really any much awareness on our part. The second step is when meta- the metaphor that actually is uh, generated, that plus or minus metaphor that I pointed at in the first, is, is, uh, is mediated through or filtered through pragmatic principles, the, the everyday pragmatic principles of conversation that you and I have. And the third is an application of social norms to the pragmatically filtered metaphors. And these engage genre, institution, and hegemonic values to get a reading. Now, my apologies again. I didn't realize what kind of format this was. But at the very top, you see the 13 metaphors. We have the music, the spoken illegal metaphor, uh, six units of visual metaphors, immigrant bust as being the four units for... um, uh, text metaphors, and one spoken undocumented metaphor. That goes into this little red box, which is almost impossible to see on the screen. I apologize. And that basically reproduces the uh, cognitive sign blending notion. After you get down to the bottom here where you have plus or minus criminal, 
That is not interpretable. That's simply a cognitive process according, that's just simply a computational process that takes place. That leads us to the pragmatic filtering, which in this is blue. Uh, and basically what's going on, it should be, as you see, a, a cycle where the sign relevant or sign internal concepts of evaluation uh, take place, drawing on relevance principles of pragmatics. Pragmatics being the social interactional processes that we need to operate to be uh, to uh, to communicate whether we're speaking or not. And the fa- filtering gets us to the point. It a- it adds the weighting, and it adds. And so we get a decision made as to what's the most likely relevant reading for this news story. And so immigrant is criminal follows from that. And other sorts, of meta- other sorts of possible readings are still available, but they're much more or less likely. As I put out there, immigrant is innocent. Then we go to the third step. Again, this is analytically separate, but it all goes on, I think, imagine all at once, where we go into an appraisal of all the, all the norms that are involved in our society. The, the television genre assumptions, the social values, as you can see in the boxes. And again, that's a, a recycling, recircling uh, cycle. And we apply the norms to the metaphor, immigrant as criminal. This comes to an, an evaluative uh, position of evaluating what the value of that news story metaphor, the dominant metaphor is. And it says effectively... In my view, and this is, a, this is my judgment here, uh, that national interest should or uh, is to be read over human rights, that crime deterrence is more important than simply for individuals, and that uh, network politics uh, overrides uh, journalistic objectivity and other sorts of values. And so that's the readings that come out of this sort of approach. Now, this is, of course, uh, uh, much more challenging to do visually than it is text-wise, um, but these cognitive processes, the three proposals, are really not ad, are not ad hoc. There's a lot of analogs in humanist thinking that uh, we'll go through really quickly. One of them comes from rhetorical and critical rhetorical studies of Calvin uh, McGee, is ideographs. If you guys studied your uh, rhetorical theory, you would remember that ideographs are the sites of political power. There's a small set of words. They're very, very powerful, and they are abstractions. And they guide the public to think in certain ways if they, as rhetoric. The social power, McGee says, is expressed there. We, we have and we respond collectively to these words as a society um, they are particular, and yet at the same time, uh, we're, we equivocate a great deal about them. We're, they're very ill-defined in terms of norms, but they do have value. And we, they're used primarily to justify uh, performing action in the name of the public. What's important for me is that they become special words, special key words. And they are con- what he calls condensed forms of the norm. But... Very much like we'll see, all the, way, the whole argument is this, that these, these terms, like metaphors, carry a tremendous amount. Right? These are enriched metaphors. These are enriched words. And they evoke not just a simple relationship, but a whole narrative. Just the way that uh, Lakoff and others argue that the metaphor, a, co- a conceptual metaphor, evokes a whole narrative. Then we go back all the way to the 50s and Roland Barthes, his notion of myth. 
In his semiotics, there, he had two levels of semiotics. One was basic language. All the science came at you, and he called it language. And then there was a second order sign, and these were a small set of signs called myths. And uh, he took the term just like that and said they were a repository of rarefied meaning, incorporating social values, hopes, fears, and dreams. Now, this two-tier theory is 50 years, 60 years old now, but we still accept it in social semiotics as, er- as recent as this last year. So social semiotics is built in this notion, so they built it in as a denotative and connotative. But I think it's richer in, in the original Bart. The myth establishes meaning through uh, evaporating all the, the stuff down to the core. It's sort of like all the particulars are, worn, are lost in an evaporation of a news story. And myth, then, is learned through these terms. And this is, not, is held not only by Bard, by all sorts of different theorists who are coming up from a, a humanist perspective, that news viewers then, when it happens in news, they, we don't fully recall the whole myth. We just remember the term which evokes the myth. So uh, myths are assimilated part, uh, piece by piece in little uh, fragments, and they are we res- and we don't know where they come from. No one can really tell you the original story of the Odyssey, and yet we always know it. Oh, that's a crucial word. Both of you guys acknowledge it. Yes, okay, or some other sort of uh, trope of that sort. Uh, and we don't know where the blend ends and begins. If we think of the Pilgrim story, well, I mean, we hear Pilgrim, or we hear you know, uh, 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 and we we suddenly have this notion without understanding fully. So the argument basically is that this, this minimal reference to a metaphor or ideograph amplifies the story type. Um, and I see myth in television news stories as being that formulaic narratives that are repeated over and over and over, condensed forms. Uh, this sits very well with Bart and McGee and, McGee and with Lakoff as well. Fragments invoke a full emotional renaissance, uh, res- resonance in us. The full structure of the myth is hidden to us. If we bring it to people's attention, they get a little bit offended uh, and they, because it really doesn't fit with their abstract, fragmented notion, and they are the centers of a lot of exploration that can be exp- uh, done. And as television news, uh, this is basically... It's my computer. It tells us what time it is. Uh, keeps me on track, makes sure I get home on time. Uh, television news is basically a one-day vitamin to reinforce hegemony. It naturalizes myth. Uh, and this has been studied by a lot of people in, in, uh, for uh, 20 or 30 years in television news. We find the fragments, we find the evidence of, their, of what's normatively appropriate and inappropriate discussions. And the typical news script is even far more coherently organized and unified than a newspaper story. So it's in visual news stories that we actually get this teleological drive, this drive to wrap it all up and give it a sort of like a a moral end. And uh, one of your uh, colleagues here, uh, Thorburn, David Thorburn, uh, wrote about this several years ago, uh, maybe... uh, maybe a decade ago, saying that news reporting offers both cognitive ordering of events as well as a moral ordering of the responsibilities. So television news is represented in this view, made compellingly real via, compellingly real, compellingly, I'm talking about the emotional level, compellingly real in terms of myth, and it explains a moral ordering that renders it compelling. 
The formulas dissolve the ambiguity. It avoids any possibility in some sense of us really learning anything new in the news. I mean, how much do you really know more about Syria than you did uh, two months ago? We could. We would expose enough to it. And it resets the ambiguity as black and white replays of the the old stories. So in this way, it reinforces ideology. Now I reviewed 24, I'm, in, I'm going back right now and reviewing the 24 stories. But the, for Latinos, the most often repeated myth is the Western. It's immigrants, the border patrol agent is a protagonist, he's a thwarted agent, a thwarted because he never gets his man, or all of them. Right? He might capture one guy and seven people get through. And the, of course the immigrant is the antagonist. And then the variations are war themes. So in this one new story, uh, I'm going. To, it's, this is really a bad news story, but I'm just going to lay it out to you. Uh, there's the antagonist, which is there's actually two sets of uh, antagonists and two conflicts in this one story of the Western. Penko is the man set against nature, and he has to resolve this conflict in terms of personal honor. And so he's his first antagonist is the immigrant. And it's called, he calls, he talks in terms of animals, although he's very polite and very sweet. Nice kind of guy, kind of like to meet him. Uh, so it's a conflict in um, narrative terms of human versus nature. And the resolution is, well, he fails. He can't stop the immigration. And halfway through the story, it gets a little more complicated because there's the antagonist of George Bush, who, who then creates another conflict, and Bush undermines... Uh, Penko. So he's, he's really thwarted. NBC News in depth tonight. The rise of illegal immigrants flooding across the Mexican border into the U.S. There's been a jump of 25% in just the past six months, which translates into as many as 2,000 illegal crossings a day. NBC's James Hattori explains what's driving this desperation. This is part of this border right here. In Nogales, Arizona, the spring rush is on for Border Patrol agents like Joe Pancoke. Okay, gracias, sir. Coping with an influx of Mexican workers seeking farm jobs. Traditionally, they they return in the uh, spring months. But after four years of decline, there is an apparent surge in illegal immigration. Nationwide, 530,000 people have been detained for trying to cross the border over the last six months. A 25% increase compared to last year. And more than half were picked up in Arizona. The Border Patrol is apprehending, uh, uh, on average, uh, close to 2,000 a day. This is why the border here is so porous, the wide-open, sparsely populated high desert that spans across much of southern Arizona. And in Sasabe, a small Mexican town just across the border, some believe there is a new once-in-a-lifetime incentive to sneak into the U.S. I think so, this man says. If they really give them amnesty, it's better to live over there than here. He's referring to President Bush's proposal last January for a new guest worker program that would grant status to illegal migrants already working in the U.S. They feel that that Bush uh, will implement certain programs that will help uh, the undocumented worker. But Bush's proposal is controversial and likely won't be addressed by Congress this year. Also, Border Patrol officials say the spike in apprehensions began before the president announced his plan. They credit beefed up enforcement in Arizona. What they can't combat, 
dire economic conditions in Mexico that draw so many to the U.S. Job market, mm -hmm. quality of life, that, that will probably always be there. And always keep watchful eyes along the border. James Hattori, NBC News, Sasebe, Arizona. Now, this is, that was really bad, and I can go on and I complain about it a lot. But I want to give you the best news story of the year on immigrants so that you get it. It's the only news story that used uh, a different story type or casts the immigrant as a protagonist. This is the immigrant as Voyager, and, the, and it's, not, it's a, feminist, a feminine Voyager as opposed to the masculine Voyager of, say, the Odyssey. And this is where the protagonist learns about herself by sacrificing the, uh, the, her illusions of life. And, uh, but ultimately, there's no resolution in this. And this is juxtaposed in the same story with the traditional um, um, Western narrative. So if, I can, uh, if you can read that, uh, basically, we have immigrants, and the first story is the protagonist, and the conflict is relational and situational. But the genre is the feminist voyager, the woman who learns about herself by sacrificing externals. But the trouble of this is that, of course, the resolution is, uh, well, of course. Now, it becomes a matter of survival. There's no illumination at the end of this voyage. And so it's a thwarted resolution in terms of narrative theory. The Western narrative is exactly the same one that you heard in the previous news story. Well, a Texas jury resumes deliberations this week in the trial of two men charged in a tragic and disgraceful episode of human smuggling. Nineteen illegal immigrants died in the back of a stifling truck last spring. The accused were allegedly transporting the immigrants across the Mexican border. As the BBC's Matt Fry reports for us tonight, the stream of immigrants is as constant as the dangers they face. Late afternoon and it's rush hour on a dusty road in Mexico. Every one of these minibuses is heading to the U.S. border. 20 miles to go and there's a Mexican government check. Look at the camera work. The passengers are unwilling to talk, caught between hope and fear. They come from every corner of Latin America. Some have paid $5,000 or more to a people smuggler to get this far. When night falls, they'll sneak across the border into the U.S. and what they hope will be a better life. They and thousands like them every day. The Mexican officials no longer try to stop them. Instead, they hand out leaflets telling them how not to so die all of this in the is about Arizona the desert. All of this is about the immigrants. And you can see all along here. Second These narrative. Are fresh footprints here. Right. Oh, yeah. The next morning on the other side, what greets the U.S. Border Patrol is evidence of a veritable stampede of illegal migrants. You can see over here, you can see the fingerprints where someone's crawled under. The well-worn path is littered with traces, precious personal belongings dumped because they've become too heavy. When you look at all this, do you feel that you're fighting a losing battle? Um, I don't know if I would say a losing battle. Um, you know, we know that the volume of traffic is out there, but we also know that um, the Border Patrol in general is doing a good job. We're stopping a lot of it, apprehending a lot of it. Forget about fingerprints or visas. Here, the biggest obstacle is the desert. Last year, 600 people died of thirst crossing the border. But even this isn't enough so to return to the, the immigrant. In Phoenix, I met two sisters from Honduras. They crossed the Rio Grande last month and almost drowned. You know full well, Damari told me, there's no dignity in any of this. 
You come here to work and just to work. It's all about survival. It's a game of cat and mouse, but the mouse is winning. Only one in three migrants gets caught. Matt Fry, BBC News, Arizona. And we have one weather note to... So, in this presentation, which is a relatively brief, what I presented was a survey. And we see the survey shows a very slanted, sort of uh, skewed view of it. The semiotic analysis of some really shows that there is a, a veneer laid on top of a lot of really poorly done uh, journalism. Uh, and then we looked at the metaphor analysis and saw that the, we can have a multimodal metaphor analysis that corresponds to uh, uh, Lakovian work and also fits very well with analysis of, of metaphor theory, uh, narratology, and, and also some uh, uh, critical uh, rhetorical work. Now, to sum up real quickly, I, I needed to come up with some some modifications. And so if I look at modest proposals of change, they're irrelevant. This is such a huge mess. You've got to do something major. And if I think about the major thing, the only thing I can think is that we should swap out journalistic criteria as ob- objective, objectivity and truth and fairness for something like talking about myth. If you acknowledge the fact that you're creating myths, re-articulating myths, you're going to find that you can evaluate these very, very intelligent uh, journalists in a very significant way. Um, but actually, I don't think it's going to happen uh, because it just doesn't work with the culture of corporate network journalism. So um, I throw that out. And I'm going to uh, propose that it's what you guys are doing in innovation and creativity to remediate network news. We just have to throw it out. And so I'm going to give you an example of what uh, my undergraduates and I were working on. We call it GPNS. And this is a trailer that we uh, proposed, and they put it all together themselves. On May Day 2007, a peaceful immigration rights march through the streets of Los Angeles ended violently as 450 LAPD officers swept through MacArthur Park firing rubber bullets and swinging billy clubs. While widely reported on by the major news outlets, this event was also recorded by a number of other participants, including the police, independent media, and the marchers themselves. And while the general public understands this event primarily through the news filter, there are local stories that didn't make the evening news. With footage gathered from different sources on the peaceful May Day march that was attacked by police officers, our team is now recreating the day's events in a virtual environment. This reenactment, when completed, is designed to remediate network news reporting. It will also be our proof of concept. We want to give people a way to present their views on a news event that they actually witness. We aim to create an open source news service for anybody with a camera who wants to share their lived experience about an event. Our platform will let the wider news viewing audience see the news event from the point of view of all the cameras present. What emerges is a real-time presentation of local news events, free of corporate news filtering. Using video clips from iPhones to network news cameras, we geotag each clip with its unique geographic camera placement coordinates. We then insert it into a virtual 3D Earth platform and arrange time and place related geoclips so that they run in sequence. Voila! With Knight Foundation funds, we will streamline the interface into a simple three-step user process. Upload, locate, and label. We call this concept Global Positioning News Service, or GPNS. This platform would give the local community's perspective on their news events in almost real time. It's app simple. Consider the images that ordinary people witnessed and recorded during the 2008 Gaza War with no official filtering from either side. 
picture local residents' stories about the continuing debacle of the Ninth Ward of New Orleans that the average viewer does not get to see. Imagine the depth of insight the news audience would gain from on-site footage taken by witnesses to the mass protests against this year's Iranian election in place of 140-character Twitter posts. Imagine the impact of videos taken by local citizens about a newsworthy topic that the networks have chosen not to cover. Our recreation of the 2007 Los Angeles May Day marches will display the potential of GPNS. GPNS will not compete with networks, but it can change the way the audience watches the evening news with Katie Couric or Newsnight with Aaron Brown. It will let people caught in the middle of the news events give us their personal perspective before they're reduced to sound bites. GPNS will let witnesses to history show us what they have seen. Of course, we didn't get the funding. But uh, we did, um, um, this was all done manually, and ultimately we've gotten to the point where it's now automatic. Uh, so this proposal was also aimed at being a pedagogical tool. So we were able to teach people by sending them on different tours through the march uh, and uh, police attack sites, as well as to present multiple positions on, the, uh, on whether officers were knocked down by the protesters or whether the police circled and attacked individuals. Likewise, what I'm very interested in also, as I mentioned uh, to Jim earlier this afternoon, is I'm interested in multimodal writing uh, for scholarship. Because I think that I've written papers on this stuff which are just on paper. And even just a little video uh, link does not tell the story. And really, we should be talking about this story. It's in, six o'clock. In the, yes, okay. In the native, in the native uh, media, in the native mediums. And this would be tremendous work for uh, professional development, I imagine, and getting the police to, to look at this as a, as a problem. Journalists, uh, because they did such a bad job of covering it. And also social organizational strategies for uh, organizing and mobilizing people. So I really propose that we just um, teach. The goal should be to teach the power of news media to the new generation of viewers and create alternatives uh, that uh, remediate it. Thank you. So, any questions? Lots of them. So, first of all, thanks very much. I, and I, you know, it was a it was a terrific presentation, but especially the um, the last bit's really inspiring. And we'll talk later about uh, some of the documentary stuff we're trying to get off the ground with the. To me, that poses the central problem of whether we imagine, and this goes to uh, James Carey's notion of ritual and transmission. A lot of people do go to news for ritual, as, as, as you described. And for those folks, the push of the news is a lot more interesting than the energy it takes to actually get out there and pull it in. Mm -hmm. And that's the trick with this. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing to get all the data out there, but the trick is how to convert people to be a little more active in, um, in how they encounter it. I guess a couple of questions. And... Um, so one is the one of the great problems television has, and, and this came up again and again in your numbers. It seemed like print was a little more balanced, and television was a little more egregious. It's what's visualizable, and that that whenever you talk to news producers, their big challenges. You know, you ask them why aren't you covering the economy, and it's like, well, you know, there aren't really good ways to visualize it. Why don't you visualize? immigrants, but why do you visualize criminals? Well, because we have a ready-made iconography for criminals, and we don't really know how do you show, what is the iconography for the immigrant? How do you show them besides as people, which is what they are, after mm -hmm. all? But how do, you, how do you add that descriptor visually? And so, of course, it, it does 
turn into a kind of problematic space. So anyway, to me, that's that's one issue. A second issue is um, the reception context. People, um, um, people, I think, are quite good at knowing what the intended message is versus knowing what they get from it. There's a kind of we have an ability hmm. to to sort of. There's been some really interesting Dutch studies on this where. People will tell you, okay, this is what they want me to get from this story, but my wife is an immigrant, right. and you know, I see this, or my friend is an immigrant, or I'm sympathetic to the immigrants. This really, I think, shows up in the, in the, um, in the, the notion of the, um, um, sorry, the ideogram, yeah, the ideograph that right. you talked about. Right. So we, we're, we inhabit a very polarized ideological moment. So for me, the word freedom makes, you know, whenever I hear that in a sentence... <laughs> I have to. I look Ron three Paul. times. Right, <laughs> right, and I think there's a lot of folks who have that kind of knee jerk, sure. knee jerk reactions on mm-hmm. both sides of the mm-hmm. fence. There, so so that um, problematizes this kind of use of stereotype, and and because it doesn't really work right now for a lot of folks, it might reinforce our position, or it might make us more critical than is the hope for desire. Right. Uh, th- third thing I just wanted to mention and ask about is context. So you looked at the big four in a way. You didn't really have access to Fox. But I wanted to mention that local came up once, and local news is, I bet, a very different space for representations of Latinos. Um, And granted the issue that, hey, this is a big constituency nationally, so that's a a fair point. But Latinos are kind of distinctive in, in U.S. broadcasting culture in that there's a pluriform Latino broadcasting network. Blacks are kind of have Black Entertainment Network. Maybe there's another national black channel, but I don't know about it. Um, but for the Latinos, there's actually a robust, I don't want to say set of alternatives, but at least a robust set of broadcast national broadcast forms, or at least cabled pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I wonder to what extent that allows the the nationals to get off, feel like they're off the hook. Like, well, you know, this is a community we have to serve. Blast maybe way to, one way to think about that is maybe to see how other ethnicities are represented. Yeah. Any? Did you do any sampling to see how Asians or how Blacks fare? We looked at in this yes, yes. Um, okay. Well, I should have taken notes. Um, so you'll help me, won't you, William? These questions. What about about what do you do with the remediated work that that challenge of the communities? Well, what I'm really focused on was the communities in the MacArthur Park area. Where the, where the great numbers of, of people were uh, who li- live around that area. So it is that community who I'm most concerned about, um, those young people and those families recognizing themselves in the material and, and being able to tell the story of what took place in their neighborhood. So um, I, I'm interested in the local use of this rather than sort of being able to articulate what... Uh, the MacArthur issue in terms of communities outside of Los Angeles, although it would be a more abstracted notion. The community in particular that I would be focused on, I think that would be most most amenable to uh, attention in terms of a GPNS sort of framework, which I call the Media Melee Project. The Media Melee Project uh, is the local community. And then, to remember that one, I've forgotten probably the other questions. So hit me with a, a, a thumbnail so I can respond. Okay. Yeah, um, well, uh, what was very striking is that we went back and looked at newspapers, and newspapers did have a range of news stories that personalized and individualized the uh, issues of, of economy, of, uh, of uh, health, health care, 
of uh, welfare and issues of, of uh, life and, and society. And so what the uh, news media, uh, print news media did was they would always bring in an individual and tell the story via that person. And, uh, and, and many times you'd see that uh, beginning in the, uh, on, on the network news here in television, uh, on TV news here for Latinos. But it was rarely followed through. And, and so uh, if it followed through, it was a good story because it did give the context that was enough to talk about persons who uh, lived like, um, I can remember her name, Sabina Estrada, who lives in Michoacan and her, her husband she hasn't seen in 10 years because he works as a gardener in L.A. And so they didn't find him, but they said this is where he works around. And they, so they told the story of that relationship and told a great deal more about it. So that was a sub, subjectivity was very rich there. That's the way to go about it. So there are ways of using this. I would imagine, although I wasn't, uh, this, uh, this is sort of uh, heavy, um, heavy lifting in terms of a lot of time, that in many more of the general stories on economics that there would be an individual that was talked about. And so people would come away with a, a, more than simple metaphors, the two-dimensional metaphors that represent people poorly. Something about uh, ideographs? Yeah, the, the, the self-deconstruction at a moment. Of- yeah. Now, the, uh, I, I didn't fill this out. McGee did focus on notions like uh, liberty, uh, freedom, uh, the Bill of Rights, and things like that. I... I didn't find that as, as compelling as just taking terms that became um, uh, powerful metaphors, that had powerful metaphors associated with it. And there then, uh, there are uh, partisan reactions according to, uh, I mean, as we see with illegal versus undocumented immigrant um, in this country today. And so that I think that's what the journalist's particular role is, is... Um, they have they, their their responsibility is to look at these partisan terms, recognize them as partisan, and look for a middle ground. And so I've written elsewhere where, in uh, since two thousand six, illegal immigrant and undocumented immigrant are partisan positions. And there's no very rarely that you find a middle ground that that the journalists take. They should be doing that. And I proposed uh, unauthorized immigrant. That's a term which doesn't. Um, sweeten the notion of the uh, crossing the border without papers. Oh my God, I just left my wallet in, in Tijuana, excuse me. Or, uh, or to uh, uh, criminalize an individual for simply trying to find work. Um, and then that is a term that could be used. So the use of these terms are always going to be galvanizing terms uh, because they are partisan. Uh, it's a, a much more complex issue with other terms, but I think they can be that there's, there's a there's a working overlap of um, of what uh, of conceptual metaphors and this notion of ideographs. They just haven't had conversation between them. Uh, and what is very striking about uh, uh, Bart is that he talked about myth, and his he had five or six. He talked he wrote a whole book about five metaphors. And so in and when we're talking about twenty six or twenty seven metaphors per news story, he just needs one to really capture the story and carry it along. Did I, there is another question somewhere in there. Uh, Thanks, Aldo, for the talk. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Fox. So, uh, uh, a question, and and first a comment, too, just responding uh, 
also one of William's points, which was about uh, the kind of perception of uh, ideographs and understanding both the denotative and connotative meaning, or some, or even persuasive meaning, kind of recognizing what they're trying to, to, to tell you. And I would disagree to, to some extent, just in the sense that, in fact, that type of understanding is constitutive of a type of aversive racism often, which is that I already understand what, what, what's going on, or I even have experience with those who have that experience in some sense, which in the end becomes a way to conflate a kind of personal experience or personal perception of racism where the broader systematic effects of racism, even those who are quite critically aware, are quite difficult to articulate, whether in terms of statistical uh, uh, analysis. I mean, so you see the apparatus that someone as sensitive as Otto has to go through in order to reveal the kind of uh, uh, nature uh, of these multimodal uh, stereotypes. So that's just to suggest that a lot of this happens uh, unconsciously and refers to a kind of structural uh, uh, discrimination, which, which is different than recognizing a, a kind of persuasive argument uh, in, in, in some way. A anyway, the question is uh, uh, just about your final point about reconstructing new narratives and myths and, uh, and what you've previously called uh, insurgent uh, metaphors mm -hmm. in, in Brown Tide Rising. And my question is whether you know of some research or if you've done research on your own about the efficacy of the creation of, of these uh, of uh, insurgent uh, metaphors in light of hegemony, right? Because it, it, uh, right, it's it's throwing the proverbial stone against the Evolution. wall, the crushing wall of hegemony, and yeah. so the, there's something about getting these insurgent metaphors into circulation in a way that they can counteract the hegemony and. I mean, even with GPNS, I mean, you need kind of new literacies, access points in order to to, to really counteract hegemony with, with that system. So, uh, creating the new insurgent metaphors, I think, is a great uh, uh, starting point of, of of an idea to replace hegemonic uh, and oppressive metaphors. But how can we make sure that those insurgent metaphors become efficacious for 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 uh, social change or, or or counter those that are just implicitly understood uh, through hegemony? <sighs> I, oh my God! I I I don't have an answer. Uh, uh, that is that's the million dollar question, Fox. Um, I, I we know that that there have been changes of metaphors, and um, and so in in Brown Tide Rising, of course, I wrote about uh, race and how race the terms for the metaphors for race and for affirmative action were inverted over time. It took thirty years, and so we really don't have. And that was. Uh, those were terms which were uh, are very salient in our in our in our uh, political environment, and they resonate very strongly with people right now. Um, I'm persuaded that that since they are these are not fixed, but uh, these are constructs that they are changeable. I don't know whether I don't have any. Uh, I can't point you to any literature that I found um, that there's that you throw that proverbial. Uh, uh, you know, um, a piece of uh, spaghetti, and it sticks to the wall, and then you keep throwing it, and eventually, it's you know, it's a different color. Uh, so uh, eventually, we could do that. I, I imagine that can be done. Uh, it has gone the negative way in in the past. Um, yet, um, I, I'm I'm hopeful because I do see that. Uh, at particular points in our political system and, and, and sites across our world, we have seen uh, significant changes, even in this last year, that were un impossible to imagine. I mean, we used to, uh, uh, in November, people talked about deficits and about, you know, and nowadays we're talking about 
uh, one percenters. And that change of terminology I was in, would not have been foreseeable um, a year ago today. I think that there's always hope that there's, the tide will change and that this will be picked up. Sasha. So yeah, this is a really uh, wonderful talk and um, I want to follow, I think, on, on Fox's question a little bit. I'm not sure I have so many questions and I want to talk to you about all of them, but um, so one, one piece of it is in terms of uh, how do you chip away at hegemonic metaphors and your hopeful uh, sort of noting of the fact that you know, large-scale social movements can and do do that. It takes a really long time usually, although recently we, we did see an interesting uh, you know, massive shift in what was admissible to public conversation to talk about inequality. Um, usually it takes many more years of concerted action. But I think one of the things that I wanted to point to from that is that um, um, this idea that, that I've been trying to use and develop, which um, I've been terming transmedia activism, but we could talk about it in other ways. It's really just about social movement media practices. And so it's the idea that, okay, what really happens? How do we uh, generate new, um, you know, uh, William called it iconography or... Um, it, it, it happens across all platforms, and so movement actors create these ideas, visions, images of themselves as subjects and of the ideas that they want to see spread and use whatever they have to spread them really widely. And, and I think that insight, um, while I think that the, the, the project that you presented around the MacArthur Park stuff, um, it's very compelling and it's very close to me, and in fact, I think that a bunch of the footage, uh, uh, yeah, was that is that right? Yeah, of so course. I so I worked with a group of people to gather footage from all those you. cameras. I was watching, and one of your students <laughs> came, and I was like, "Here's two terabytes of footage. Your project sounds awesome." So I I, I like the project. I like the the representations of of that event. But one thing about that is that, um, and I'm not saying that you were suggesting this, but that the and part of it was just the rhetoric, the rhetorical strategy of promoting it tonight, right? But really, it's not about tools. It's not like there's not a tool which we can create, which we'll then use to do this work. It's that all of the different places and platforms where movement actors um, generate these alternative you know, visions of reality. Um, the question is about uh, the, the MacArthur Park stuff. So... Um, I actually think that there's, or I wonder what you think about um, the alternative reading of what happened with the media, uh, the mediation of that whole event, which is that usually in the context of, you know, police attack on a peaceful crowd, we know what the, uh, the master frame is that'll usually be used to justify that, which there was an attempt to do that in that case, which is violent protesters create a clash with police, innocent bystanders may have been harmed. Uh, journalists, journalists were harmed. In this case, journalists were harmed. Many, uh, what, seven or eight uh, arrested, uh, including Fox News. Uh, what's, uh, what's her name? Christina. Um, she's married to one of the LAPD uh, oh, really? ex-officers. Her rib was broken. Her camera woman's wrist was broken. So I was shocked, and many people in you know the movement were shocked when we went home and saw Fox News looking like uh, LA and D media front page, which was constantly cycling images of police brutality against peaceful protesters. So 
I kind of read that whole thing as one of the rare cases which is a counterfactual against the usual narrative that gets imposed on those type of situations. So I want to push back a little bit on the way that the, the harms there were erased because I think because uh, mass media reporters were also harmed, we got to see this rare instance of network news looking like movement media. I wish it was the case, Sasha. I, I, uh, uh, I wrote a, something that came out in, in Aslan last year where I looked at 55 news stories that came out of the, uh, the, the march and and they were all they were local and network news to refer to uh, uh, William's question about the local news, and uh, notwithstanding the the examples, the basic narrative, of course, that uh, in at what I found was that at um, with uh, for the first two hours after the attack, and the, the newscasters, the news reporters on the ground, were saying marvelous things. They were saying, "We don't know what happened." Uh, uh, suddenly, they were the police were shooting and uh, bullets, and and people got hurt, and there must have been some reason for this, but we don't know what it is. Perfect. It was exactly what it was. It was as clear and clear as possible. The next day, the the standard uh, riot suppression frame was articulated, and so of course we knew who the the perpetrators were. The the police, of course, were the uh, social agents of control uh, that were resp- had to respond potentially too violently, and the the people who surprisingly were injured were not bystanders but the the journalists, and so that was the little twist that you actually got a great example of. Um, after, six months later, as you know, uh, as well as I do, that. Um, uh, Chief Bratton put together a commission, and they went thoroughly through the material, basically to try to cover their butts up because there was a $30 million lawsuit that was about to bankrupt L.A. and uh, destroy the LAPD. And they came out with a statement that basically confirmed that this was not, this was police brutality. And their argument was uh, stated very, uh, so it's very nice because I juxtapose in the article the um, the. Uh, the riot control frame that the media articulated the second day after the and, and continue to articulate and rearticulate all through the rest of the day, and the statement that was made by the LAPD, which uh, commissioned its own uh, uh, castigation uh, of the events. Well, of course, uh, and and the money never got to the people, but they, the judge uh, uh, confirmed and affirmed the statement of, uh, of um, Chirla and, and the LAPD commission, that the LAT, LAPD was responsible. However, on the day that there was that uh, release of the report, as well as the day that the money was supposed, that the judge made their judgment, there was ever, never any statement by the media about their own misrepresentation of events. And so that's, irrespective of the one of these examples, the, the the major idea that went across was that there these were violent people who were needed to be held back by a police force and so the LA, the LAPD actually came clean and that was remarkable and and applaudable a very very laudable situation but the uh, media didn't uh, they ex- they maintained a, a false meta- uh, framing and continued it and never Never pulled back on it, even though there was evidence to the contrary. Uh, formally, in the judges, in the judges' case, they simply ignored it. So, uh, I've forgotten what the question was, but 
I yeah, the framing was different from the media than I. And and that was a national yes, and that was a national uh, that was a national framing. So even today, of course, you know, immigrant rights is understood to be uh, potentially very dangerous. Hi, uh, I'm Molly. I'm one of the graduate students here, and this was an awesome presentation. I'm really excited about it. Um, one reason I'm so excited about it is because I'm doing a similar project looking at hackers in the media and how hackers are portrayed wow. in the media and the relationship between that and computer crime jurisprudence and legislation. And one of the things that I'm finding during my research is there's this construction of a character that uh, Paul Ohm, who's a cyber law scholar, I think the University of Colorado, I could be wrong, calls the super user, who is a conflation of different media stories and conceptions of this usually almost always a guy, almost always a teenager, almost always living in his parents' basement who can do anything sure. and can take down the whole network and destroy everyone's lives and da, 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 da. and that he, he posits that most, if not all, of the computer crime jurisprudence that's come down and the legislation that goes through and all the different additions to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act over the years since it was originally passed are in are in response to this guy yeah. who doesn't exist and mm-hmm. who can't exist. Mm-hmm. But they're all based around this one, per- about restraining this mythological figure, and they end up restraining everybody and causing huge problems throughout the entire computer landscape. And I'm wondering what you're finding, what the relationship between these media objects that you're looking at and the different laws that are being passed and the different political machinations that go around about Latinos and, the, and immigration and different issues around around those topics, what the web of connection is that you're finding and how you're going through that sort of stage of the research, if you're going through that stage of the research. Thank you, Molly. Um, now, I haven't gone to that step. Um, uh, it's really great. Uh, the topic that you're choosing uh, chose is really great. There's a lot of work done in uh, uh, legal, uh, legal studies on... Uh, what I look to see is as, as, as constitutive metaphor analysis to see how uh, the First Amendment has changed, say, across time and so forth. So that's really, really powerful to, to take a look at this mythological figure that's metaphorical that becomes the uh, focus of, of a lot of jurisprudence. Great topic. Um, well, uh, I don't really have a, a quick follow-up on your question, a particular one to... To any of this, because this was 2004, this was across a whole year. It wasn't a particular instance, and uh, uh, so it was. It's it's yeah. It's less. It wouldn't be the. If I was choosing a project to look at your question, I wouldn't have chosen this data. I'd have chosen a. Uh, uh, I would have chosen, um, a DreamAC work, and looked how DreamAC studies were, uh, how DreamAC is presented. To the uh, uh, and over a series of time, that would be a good topic because there's a, ju- a very, very wide dist- uh, difference between um, what I know as Dream Act, uh, uh, Dreamers and the media portrayals of it. And we could look at the, uh, at the different uh, iterations of the Dream Act itself. That would be a good project. This one doesn't, doesn't really address it specifically, so it's very amorphous to be... I would only respond um, amorphously to your very... Uh, precise question. So maybe over uh, over a glass of wine, I can effuse. Okay. <laughs> Excellent talk. Um, just um, something that Molly mentioned about legislation and 
you know, your work on Brown Tide Rising, where, you know, the, the title coming from, I believe, legislation of Prop 187, um, one of the metaphoric language used within legislation. So I was just wondering if if that's part of uh, your, your upcoming work. Uh, do you continue looking at uh, the metaphoric language within legislation, whether it's a Dream Act or some of the Alabama bills that are coming out uh, yeah. Arizona? I Oh, my God. Well... Uh, when I was writing the book, you couldn't do anything else. You just write the book. And then Arizona came, and so I was putting the anthology together. And now I'm doing the, the political humor stuff, and that's uh, sort of all the mental space and time space I really sort of have. It's such an important issue. Um, uh, Dream Act work would be really, really important to look at um, as, as, a, as a, an avenue to explore this. I um, And there was another piece to your... Your your statement that I'm I'm, I'm slipping on right now. Um, just about the the metaphoric language and and uh, the oh, role yes. in shaping um, you know the discourse surrounding these issues. Uh, four years ago, three years ago, I had an undergraduate group and we looked at uh, at uh, legislative language and uh, versus uh, media language on on I guess it must have been on the marches, and we looked at websites and we looked at. Uh, uh, Senate testimony and congressional records. And it was pretty striking how different the languages were, how different the discourses were. Um, uh, the student who I worked most closely with, who was actually doing the, the heavy lifting in terms of the analysis, decided to uh, go and work for um, someone in Sacramento. One of the, and so she took the work. So I never found out. I can, I can tell you what the findings were. I was, the findings were that the legislators were basically attorneys and they looked at immigrants as, as basically alien using uh, the uh, old um, uh, English law uh, terms of alien uh, how, uh, that have not, uh, simply not been carried through. Uh, the notion of illegal was a term that was used that was uh, primary among those who were arguing for more restrictive and, and undocumented was used sparingly uh, at best uh, in, uh, in, the federal, uh, in the federal congressional record. That was, those are the major findings. It was very, we looked at, at different positions, and it was a lot more subtle. But we were seeing that the, notion, the old terms of, uh, of naturalization and subject was even, I mean, like subject of, you know, the British subject popped up at, at rare occasions. That was really just a transmittal of that old language and discourse. That would be a wonderful topic to look at, in fact. That's an extraordinary topic. I just haven't had a chance. And it's text. It's wonderful because it's all available. It's transcribed and available, easily uh, accessible. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that presentation. Uh, we were talking earlier, uh, when we were this afternoon we were talking about uh, this, the distributed nature of so many of these phenomena. And in that context, uh, I'm thinking about agency in, in news and how news actually gets created. And so uh, you have this great part of this picture of uh, the, the way the language gets uh, generated and the way in which it, uh, it, it connects into myths and so forth. Uh, and that brings up the, the 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 fact that myths are carried both by the generators and the receivers, and uh, and you and Rogelio were just talking about uh, legalistic sources of some of the language and so forth. Uh, 
So it, it, it seems to me that news is something that is uh, incredibly complicated because it's really generated at uh, many different levels, uh, both by uh, we always focus on you know uh, the television person and 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 the talking head that's uh, generating the language uh, in real time, but uh, behind that there's this this vast uh, apparatus and. Uh, I'm not sure how people get at that apparatus, but I'm just wondering if uh, you've connected with that apparatus and you've seen, you know, the uh, the dark matter out there someplace that's actually uh, influencing the way that the news gets uh, presented. And, and I think you've connected with something. Certainly, there's something here about the uh, legalities in the way in which uh, the legal thinking generates certain terms, uh, legal terms uh, that you've mentioned here, criminal, uh, illegal, uh, it's so. So I'm wondering how much the, uh, the legal industry itself is behind this, this process and how that feeds into uh, the way in which people create uh, news stories or are there other people in newsrooms, such as uh, yes. the, the, the project managers and the editors and so forth? Uh, I know this is uh, way too complex to analyze here, but I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, are there approaches out of this uh, language analysis that you've made uh, so convincingly that move us into these other areas? Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Jim. I would also want to just reiterate that I appreciate so many questions. This is wonderful to, to be able to try to respond to them. That's another question that's very, uh, very embedded in a, in a in an analysis much further than I can talk about. I actually have friends who are journalists, and 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 I have to lean on there. Uh, and as we know, that's where it's all taking place. I think the socialization. Well, I I give up. Uh, right now, I'm working with the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, uh, National uh, National Hispanic Media Coalition which is an advocacy group uh, trying to uh, deal with racism that's perpetuated uh, against Latinos and also representation uh, in, uh, in news, newsrooms across the, uh, across the country. Uh, with, that's really the point of getting people to understand it. Uh, I, the socialization process of journalism, as you, as you well know, is, um, is insular. And it is inherent, the ethos of a journalist is so, so tightly... Um, uh, it, it prohibits interaction beyond a certain lang- uh, certain pale. Uh, Colleen Carter just wrote a book on on the language of newspapers, where she talks about how, and I, I get think I think it was Cambridge uh, that published it last year. It was a marvelous ethnography because she was a print journalist who became um, uh, a professor and a linguist. And so she looked at the language, how the language would process. So if you're interested in a very recent study of newspapers, I would go to her work. But basically, they're saying that he, she says that there's a the social process is an uh, is um, is an extended apprenticeship with elders, and and they teach you the ethos of what's appropriate for a journalist, not only just in the language that's used and the techniques, but also in the interaction with the rest of the world. And so when you violate that, as she has herself, once she left the newsroom, she was scorned and, and criticized for, for becoming them uh, and, and, and for, for violating her, her previous ethos. And so I think that's what's very restrictive. That's far more restrictive, I think, um, and it gives me less uh, reason to have hope 
that uh, that we're able to change that that uh, culture because um, I mean the classics uh, from the '60s of journalism um, all talk about the same sort of uh, uh, socialization practices that are so um, uh, so uninterested in um, the outside world and new ideas. In some ways, I think this might be a good follow-on to Jim's question. Um, I want to take us back to the first proposal that you made at the end of your talk, um, where you said, you know, what would be great is if we could all acknowledge that we're creating myths and uh, find a way to do them in a sort of self-conscious way. And what interests me about that is I work on um, 19th century journalism in the U.S. and Latin America and also look for parallels uh, with 21st century journalism, but looking more at digital new media than, than, than broadcast. Um, but you could argue that if you look at the history of journalism, you know, there are paradigms that preceded objectivity um, where there was some sort of idea of, okay, what we're doing is creating a story, we're applying imagination to this. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm certainly not going to say that the 19th century offered a better alternative to representations oh, of Latinos, like for example, in the news. <laughs> but you could argue that, okay, uh, there, you know, there have been other ways of thinking about writing news. And I think that if you look at digital media... Um, there's a lot of suggestion that there is a shift away from objectivity Hmm. towards an idea that the uh, perspective of the writer is more important, for example, in the writing of a blog, um, and and that some of the elements that disappeared in the 20th century when news really aligned with the standard of objectivity have started coming back in. So I think my question for you is twofold. One is that the proposal that your second proposal that you made, it interests me that it was very focused on the visual as the solution to the problem. And that, to me, seems very aligned with a paradigm that is informed by objectivity. And um, so, or it could be. I mean, there, okay. it, it, the, the sort of bringing into view of, of, from a variety of angles uh, the story feels to me like the ethos that is that is behind objectivity. Mm. Now, you could argue it's bringing it into view from uh, the, the point of view of a variety of agents as opposed to from on high or something, so maybe it's different. But so part one of the question is, you know, was that intentional? Is there something about, well, we can't quite get rid of this paradigm, and therefore this is the ethos behind this proposal? And then part two is, um, you know, I... I I'm familiar with the changes that I think I see happening in the digital and, and less so in television. So to me, if, if objectivity really feels like it's stuck, that's, that's exceptional in the medium of television compared to some of the other things that I'm looking at in the 21st century. So that's my second part of the question. question. Um, stuck? Do you feel that, have you seen any sort of shift over the work that you've done? Do you feel that it's really so difficult to move towards having people recognize that, that there is this storytelling element because objectivity is stuck. Is that something that has... Have, have you not seen any shift in television news as a result of interactions with online news mm-hmm. um, in the last few years? Okay, I understand, yes. These are marvelous questions. What is your name? Uh, sorry, my name is Kelly. I'm, I am a visiting scholar Kelly? at Brown and... Thank you, Kelly. Um, uh, to the visual, to the visual, I I see uh, I, there's 
what we do is chop up all the, metaf- all the images. We take out all the, ta- the talking heads and the framing. And we present all these clips um, uh, de-media. Uh, there, there's no narrative that's built into them. So the, the, the sequence of, a narr- of, of, of the traditional news story where you have five shots and they're taken from five different points of view from five cameras and then slapped together, that's taken out. And what we do is we say all the shots that take place chronologically from one, point of, one position or from one area are rung, strung together. So a person can click on each of them or run a tour through them uh, and see what happened from this point of view. Then you can go to the other point, another point of view and do that again. So it's more like less an objectivity than a Rashomon sort of viewpoint, where we have five different stories being told uh, with this data, and you get to see all of them if you want to. So it's not objectivity so much as uh, inclusivity, and it, it deprivileges any position, any one position. As to... Um, the changes in the last few years, that's where I have to beg ignorance. I've been, um, uh, actually I stopped watching the news uh, to write the book, and it was just the circumstances of my life. Uh, my wife would get up at dawn, and she was out the door uh, before, I mean, she got up before dawn, she was out the door before dawn, and I'd go out with her. And I got this uh, office, which I asked for specifically that it had no windows, so I could work. And... Uh, at UCDC, University of California in District of Columbia, in, you know, in D.C. And I woke, go there, and I had my uh, phone, or my computer tell me what time it was. And then I'd get up and go get something and come back and sit down and work. And my wife would come back at 8 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock, I don't know, what, whenever hour she'd call, she'd say, meet me at the Metro, and then we'd have dinner. Uh, so for those two years, those last two years, which have gone, been so important, I haven't looked at the, the news at all. In fact, my class started this quarter, and I did that. So I know that there's been significant changes. When I do dip into it recently, I see that there is, uh, there's trending toward different sorts of... I mean, there's a lot of effort to try to tweak the, the, the project, but I haven't looked at it systematically. And so um, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to make a judgment, um, but I tend not to be very hopeful. Yeah, I, I I just don't know. That's a wonderful question. Another empirical question. Thank you. Hi there. Thanks for the talk, which is great. Um, my name is Sunny. I'm another one of the CMS grad students. Um, I do have a question, but I just had an observation sort of sticking on the issue of, of uh, images and the visual. I spent some time in 07 and 08 observing the um, the production practices of the CBS Evening News, especially right before broadcast. And, and the thing that was really striking to me was how late they go, right up until the last minute they're still working on script edits, visual compositing, um, the basic stuff that we would think was sort of set in stone. It's very much still fluid right before the lights go on in the studio. So I wonder if some of the um, the visual tropes that they're using, which are usually from libraries, uh, now they're servers, of uh, stock imagery and tagged uh, archival clips, whether some of the 
sort of um, misused imagery such as the, uh, the, the threat imagery and the, mm-hmm. the pulsing red words and the globe um, in the Padilla story that you showed us. Uh, you know, whether some of these uh, uses aren't just kind of motivated less by some political agenda and maybe more just by the compressed production schedule. Sure. So maybe a, a, a good way to start to, to, to work on that issue would be just audit the tagging procedures and maybe infuse some, some new imagery into these stock databases so that they do have, uh, you know, an, an image for extraordinary rendition or an image for suspension of habeas corpus instead of just using the spinning vague geopolitical threat globe every time. Um, so uh, onto my question, uh, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm also interested in sort of the, uh, the, the narrative remedy that, that you're talking about. Um, and to me, it seems like the, the news misunderstands what narrative really is. When they say that there's a narrative taking hold, really what it means is repetition. Um, it seems very similar to the repetition of myth that you're talking about. And uh, in terms of conceptual change, I, I don't know of any theories of conceptual change that begin with repetition. So, you know, maybe is uh, my question is, is, is the issue, do we have to teach narrative as well as teaching myth um, to, to journalists and kind of show them that repetition isn't really a story that's, that's myth making? And, and uh, you know, how, how can stories that, that sort of are in the middle of a, of a news event, how can they also sort of take a narrative view, beginning, middle, and end, potential resolution? How can they start to give uh, the, the consumers of news that sense of the arc of a story rather than just hammering on one specific angle of it and kind of removing the temporal dimensions of the story? Oh, wow. Uh, great questions. I mean, each of these deserves a lot more than my off-the-cuff uh, response. Um, it would one be wonderful if they if if there was a, a greater effort to try to focus on this. I think narrative. The thing is that we only have, we're talking about two and a half minute at max, and often 11, 12, 20 second uh, stories that are put together. And so um, there is certainly a lot of opportunity for alternative stories. Myth and metaf- and narrative are one and the same ultimately. Uh, what I'm what I'm doing with the twenty four news stories that have to do with immigration is quoting them in terms of myth and quoting them in terms of narrative. And so the next paper I'll write will be that. And we're right in the middle of it, and it's falling into the hypothesis that they're one and the same. The formats for the arc of the story is very, it's a very short arc to the end, and it's always res- resolved. There's always some sort of teleological perspective at the end um, with very, very rare exceptions. And they're even, they're even underscored. This is an, un- this is an, un- this is an unfolding story. So you don't know where the end is, and they can't tell you. Um, as to the newsroom challenges, I think that their technologies are, are, um, are I presume, you're in a better position to answer your own question than, than, than me. Would it be possible for, for uh, alternative um, uh, framings to be set up? The decision has, isn't the decision made at... Uh, at, at 10 o'clock in the morning when, in, the, in, the, in the newsroom uh, when, when the decisions are made by the producer, news producer, as to what, what's go, what the, how you're going to stack the, the stories. What's going to go first? What's going to be the best lead? And those decisions that are made. I think that's where the questions uh, of, uh, of creating a new uh, alternative narratives um, can be addressed. And the other question that I want to ask you, I want you to sit and talk to me more about this, is uh, those stock images are uh, tagged in certain ways. And I think that would be an incredible thing to look at because there's certainly alternative uh, sets of, of, uh, 
of uh, cataloging that would allow for it. I see, yeah, I saw three of the news uh, um, uh, networks use the same piece of footage of the dead immigrant in the desert. I mean, they didn't even, I mean, I'm sure there's more, there's a, one dead person every day. And yet they had the same sock image, um, which is just astonishing to me. Uh, so I want to talk to you. I don't have anything really much to answer your, your um, very significant questions. Thank you. We'll talk. Thanks. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's it, uh, the classic has already been done. That movie with uh, Bruce uh, Willis and yeah, the Die Hard movie. There, that's with the guy who's in the in in the his mom's basement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for a really fascinating talk. Um, I'm Nathan. I'm a researcher in the Media Lab, but I'm part of the Center for Civic Media, so we also think about the news a lot. Um, there are like three kinds of recommendations, I think, that I got out of your talk. One was definitely about like trying to change the kinds of narratives that people tell, the myths. Another seemed to be about the diversity of topics that people were covering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, If the situation is that all the news covers is immigration and border stories, have we actually improved things? And then another had to do with like, increasing the number of stories. And it was that last recommendation which is interesting to me. Do you think that if newsrooms were convinced to cover more Latino stories, that this would just like, shake out naturally, that you'd have a greater diversity of narratives and like, you wouldn't just have these same negative things repeated over and over? Yeah, what a great... Uh, yes, it's... Uh, the empirical answer is no. The answer to the empirical question is no. There was an MOU uh, put out seven years ago, eight years ago, by uh, the National Hispanic Media Coalition, and three of the major networks signed it, saying we were going to have more representation behind the, in the in the newsroom, and also uh, anchors and more news stories. And uh, they put more good-looking Latinos uh, in front of the camera. And there is a, a modest but not a significant number of people actually working in journalism, most of whom have got fired now in the last couple of years. Uh, but there was no change in the actual numbers of news stories because the decision was, uh, is made um, by the, the, the news director very early on in the day, and the stacking, all of that stuff is, is, uh, is maintained, I, presumably, although... I need to ask. Uh, I need to ask you if uh, if there is is there really any is that this, is that process what I understand continues to take place. Um, the decisions are made very early in the day, and simply things fall into place. They, the stacking, the term stacking, just simply you can easily see that it was a set of videotapes of people stack one after another, and that's how it, it was all set up. No, they didn't. They haven't been able. They haven't. Uh, the um, National Hispanic Media Coalition put out a, a, a press briefing saying, you're not covering it. You didn't follow the MOU. Uh, and, of course, the networks and local news didn't pick it up. 
This is wonderful. I don't think I've had so many marvelous questions that deserve a lot more time and thinking. I'm glad it's taped so I can listen to the, th- the questions afterwards and think about them more seriously. Um, this is very much appreciate all your, your uh, serious, uh, very considered thinking. Uh, it's a joy. I'd like to thank Otto for coming and giving such an interesting talk and getting so many different interesting questions. That's a sign of uh, excellent material. Thank you so much. Thank you.